It's another big week of news surrounding Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson and anomalies in criminal investigations of the mayor's grandson. That's the first topic for discussion on This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with co-host Laura Johnston. Let's start with the top stories of the past week. Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley wants the investigation of a homicide he says has links to Frank Q. Jackson, the mayor's 22-year-old grandson, handled by an agency that is not the Cleveland police. O'Malley says he has no doubt that city homicide investigators would do a thorough and complete job investigating an execution-style killing where a vehicle owned by the mayor's grandson was seen speeding away. But O'Malley said anomalies in the investigation thus far undermine the public's confidence in the investigation. To avoid any appearance of potential conflict, detectives who do not ultimately answer to the mayor should be in charge of the investigation, O'Malley says. The anomalies are adding up in several investigations involving Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson. First came the story by reporter Adam Faris about how the city prosecutor's office, which answers to the mayor, declined to file charges that should have been automatic against the grandson. That case involved the beating of a woman with two witnesses. The county prosecutor eventually learned of the case and presented it to a grand jury, which returned to felony indictments. Then came the investigation of a homicide in which two gunmen opened fire in a daytime execution-style killing. Police who went to the mayor's house to talk to his grandson inexplicably turned off their body cameras, and then they did not take the grandson into custody, something that is routine in cases like this. By not arresting him, police lost the opportunity to check his hands for gunshot residue and secure other evidence. Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson has finally made public statements about the anomalies that have occurred in the two criminal investigations involving his grandson. In an exclusive interview with Cleveland.com's Bob Higgs, the mayor says that neither he nor any member of his staff interfered in the cases. They did not interfere in a city prosecutor's decision not to file charges in a beating case, even though a grand jury found the case to involve three felonies. The mayor said he did not order police to turn off their body cameras when they came to his house to talk with the grandson. Jackson also said that he sees no need to change public policy to have outside agencies conduct investigations when they involve him or his family or other city workers. He also said he believes police have handled the case according to their policies and procedures. The new team running the Cuyahoga County Jail says it has made a lot of progress in making it safer and more humane, but they know they have a long way to go before the jail reaches a standard that taxpayers expect. County Executive Armin Budish has a new chief of staff, jail administrator, sheriff, jail warden, and others on that jail team. They met with reporters and editors at Cleveland.com to lay out a long list of reforms they say they have instituted, including ensuring that food is safe, long-needed repairs are made, mental health is assessed to identify suicide risks, the inmate population has been reduced, and jail doors are in working order. Crowding and jail staffing are not where they need to be, though, so lockdowns of inmates still occur regularly, increasing jail tensions. The Rocky River Police Department is one of nearly 400 across the nation to enter into a partnership with Amazon that would allow it to access video from residents who use the Ring video surveillance doorbells. Privacy experts worry that giving police access to residents' video could put extra burdens on people of color and feed racial anxieties. Critics are also alarmed about police pushing specific brands of products, like Ring. The Rocky River Agreement was not considered by city council there. Rather, the police chief entered into it on his own. The agreement does not give police access to personal customer information, including video, without consent of the owner. Rocky River police smashed the minivan window of a 44-year-old Romanian national to aid in his arrest by agents of U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. George Lattes came to the country on a visitor visa in 2002 to study at a New York monastery, but he overstayed the visa, became a church leader on Cleveland's west side, and fathered three children here. He is fighting deportation now because his middle daughter has a heart condition that the family believes uh, cannot be treated in their native country, and they fear she would not survive a flight overseas. The smashing of the window and arrest were captured on video on police body cameras, 
and Latte's supporters say police overreacted to a peaceful man who had declined to get out of the minivan in fear. Police repeatedly warn him in the video that they will have to break the window to reach him if he does not surrender. That's a lot of news to talk about, and we didn't even mention the long lines people encountered at the Browns game where they ended up being hugely disappointed by that big loss. Yeah, let's skip the Browns. We've got bigger issues to discuss, and nothing is bigger than what is going on with Cleveland's longest-serving mayor. This controversy shows no sign of lessening, so let's get to it. Adam Fries, welcome back to This Week in the CLE. We're going to put your name on the chair as a permanent guest. Hmm. Lucky me. Let's get back to a topic we talked about last week where the city prosecutor declined to file charges or refer to the county prosecutor a beating case involving Frank Q. Jackson, the mayor's grandson. Where we left it last week was that no one had any idea why the city prosecutor didn't pursue the case. It's pretty clear charges should have been automatic, as proven by how quickly a grand jury indicted him after looking at the case. Adam, we finally got a response from the prosecutor on the reason for the decision. Right. Carrie Howard uh, said that the problem wasn't with his office, but with CMHA officers who did not present the full case when they, you know, went went to them and said, we think there's charges here. We've got enough. Um, uh, he, he when I talked to him, he specifically cited a video that was not uh, that he said was not made available, although in the investigative file that we got it explicitly mentions that they went and got the video which is of a truck registered to frank q jackson speeding away from officers as Mm -hmm. they told him he was he he, he was supposed to stop at first cmha was reluctant to respond but eventually we heard from them about what howard claimed what did we hear right so I, i called cmha uh, police chief Andy Gonzalez that night he seemed unaware and kind of blindsided by that uh, statement from the from Kerry Howard so he came back over the weekend and said absolutely not we didn't do anything wrong we presented everything and that the prosecutor's office gave it a quote cursory review before declining charges you know the the howard explanation just doesn't feel like it holds water we published the cmha police report with your first story on this and any reading of that should have brought a recognition that a crime likely occurred so even if the cmhk cmha case was somehow lacking in the eyes of the prosecutor the response wouldn't be to no bill it the response would be hey looks like a crime happened here's what we need to do to to prosecute this, but Howard's office just shut the case. Yeah, I mean that is completely common in just about every case. If you if you have something that looks really good, but you need a piece or two, you tell the officers, "Hey, can you go get this piece?" And they didn't do that. Um, and the proof and of the, that is what happened at the county, yeah, right? I mean, the county got it. They were on it for days, not weeks. It was very short time that they were made aware of it, and took it to the grand jury and got an indictment, I mean, within days. And that's a really important point, I think. Howard's office determined the case did not even amount to a misdemeanor, but the grand jury indicted Frank Q. Jackson on three felonies. So what's the status of that case right now? I mean, he's charged, uh, yeah, the most serious charge is second-degree felonious assault, which is punishable if convicted by between two and eight years in prison. Um, and that was for, uh, I mean, she, she, the, the woman in the case got several injuries, but what the prosecu- county prosecutor's office explained is if you choke somebody, like he's accused of choking somebody, really the only other step above that is death, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it the, um, the felony. And as of Thursday, he's, he was in jail, correct? Yeah, you can get a, a, an ankle monitor to get out. Right. Yeah. He's. Um, yeah. There's been shortage of ankle monitors uh, for a long time. That's been an issue that the county's trying to address, and he's want, now one of the inmates that's sitting in there waiting for a GPS monitor. So the prosecutor's decision in this case not to file his charges is not the only anomaly you've discovered with the mayor's grandson. You wrote about a separate case when the police body cameras were turned off and officers lost a chance to secure potential evidence because they didn't arrest Frank Q. Jackson on the night of a homicide they have him tied to. So let's start with those body cameras. Yeah, so that's that's the thing that really touched off all of this, I think, is um, it was an investigation into a, a deadly shooting in on the middle of Clark Avenue in the middle of the afternoon um, and a car registered to Frank Q. Jackson was seen speeding away from the, uh, the shooting. 
So officers went to the house. They did not have their body cameras on, and uh, they they the mayor came out and said, you know, he's not coming in right now to give a statement, so he'll come in the next morning with his attorney when she's available. And so they missed, the officers there missed an opportunity to collect some some evidence, including gunshot residue tests, which would have likely shown if he had fired a gun or not, and it could have been over, or partially over right there. That could have given the investigation a little bit of direction one way or the other. It didn't happen, and... So the body cameras, that's not normal, right? The police are supposed to have the cameras running when they're out on a call the whole time. Can police choose to simply turn them off or do they need instructions from a supervisor? So that's actually a kind of an interesting debate that's going on right now because it's a homicide investigation and homicide investigators are not required to wear body cameras. So they do all their taped interviews. They're they're taped at the... uh, Station. Yeah, at the headquarters. So... But they went there to tow a car and to look for a suspect. There was plenty of patrol officers that were there that should have had their body cameras on. Let's go a little bit deeper into that decision not to take Frank U into custody. Um, Anybody that knows how Cleveland police operate knows that if there's a homicide, they basically round up everybody and take them down. I mean, it's just automatic. Um, It's not the way a lot of other departments do it, but they, they always have. Um, so not taking him into custody is extremely unusual for the reasons you mentioned. You could have gotten the the gun residue test. You could have secured his clothing, other things that ultimately, uh, could be used if you were to prosecute him. Um, and in this case, they simply, they didn't. Yeah. They, very unusual for, for that, uh, for that situation, especially in a homicide investigation where they're going, you know, they're going hard and trying to, to figure out what happened and they've got to do it very quickly. So after, after two weeks, basically of your revelatory reporting on these things, uh, with no real statement from the mayor, except that this is not anybody's business. Uh, he, he sat down for an interview with cleveland.com's Bob Higgs and made his position known on this, um, claiming that, Neither he nor anybody in his administration have interfered with the investigation. What else did he tell Bob? Um, so he he told Bob, um, you know, he thinks his uh, law department for the uh, the CMHA beating case that they acted properly, that they went by, you know, their ethics and their, you know, what they're supposed to do, that they did not do anything wrong uh, with that case, and that he never ever interfered either with that or any other investigations. And he pointed out that CMHA did arrest his grandson in May and that the city prosecutor's office did prosecute him to a conviction. Right. He's pointing to something where the system worked as, as opposed to going deeper into the where it did not. Um, I, nobody had accused him of interfering with the investigation. So him making this emphatic denial that felt a little bit off off topic. I mean, people wondered about the anomalies. Things have happened differently, but nobody had said Frank Jackson had told the prosecutor, don't prosecute this case, uh, turn off your body cameras. It's been more the reporting is unusual things have happened in this case. He seemed to take some issue with that, although you really can't take issue with the fact that there are anomalies. Uh, the county prosecutor, Mike O'Malley, while while being careful not to say Cleveland police are doing anything wrong. He says the opposite came out this week and told you he wants somebody else investigating it because of the appearance of things like these anomalies. What was his basic thinking there? Uh, He just wanted an outside investigating agency to come in and and take over the rest of the case to, to just to, like you said, avoid the appearance of any impropriety, just get somebody who's 100% completely unconnected to the city of Cleveland or any of its officials uh, to do a straightforward investigation. Uh, That would be up to uh, police chief Calvin Williams has to specifically ask somebody. Uh, Usually it's, it's BCI in other parts of Ohio. That's not unusual. Cleveland rarely asks for uh, the help of, of BCI, but that would be one example of an agency that could come in and take over an investigation if they were asked. So at the core of all this discussion about Frank Hugh Jackson as the mayor, and you put together a perspective piece this week on how the mayor has put a lot of effort 
over the years into coping with gun and gang violence, only to have it now on his doorstep. Your piece also detailed the photo that you obtained of the felon and suspected gang member photographed with a gun on the mayor's driveway, something he did not address in his interview with Bob. Uh, And you could see a police car in the background to that, I might add. Anyway, the point of your story was this is a guy who understands the street, and now he's caught up in it. You talked to a couple of people who know him fairly well. What were their thoughts on this? Um, uh, their thoughts were that this is one of the, the thing that things that hits closest to home to the mayor, gun violence and violence in the city has been something he has always tried to, um, to fight against and to, to come up with ways to control it or, or tamp it down in in the city. Um, and that it, it's very, it's personal for him. He lives in central. That neighborhood has a lot of gun violence, a lot of gang violence. He's chosen to live there for, I think more than six decades or something like that and it's because he wants to help he knows these kids that have grown up uh in the street uh that are in gangs and he wants to help them you know it was interesting though and laura it was what was striking about his statement was he didn't address any of that I and mean, i think if he actually talked about those issues it would be pretty profound i mean i, I know him fairly well he's a very smart guy who's put a lot of thought into this and if he ever sat down to talk about the personal meaning of these things you know i think you'd get insights you can't really get anywhere else but his statement focused squarely on i didn't interfere my administration didn't interfere i don't think we need to change any processes the system is working when it's clearly not yeah, it was. Uh, I think the the video that the city posted of of Bob's interview was like seven minutes, seven or eight minutes. It wasn't very detailed, and what they released, the city released, and it would be, I, I think, a very interesting perspective. He's got a perspective that no one else has as somebody who lives in the in a, a, a neighborhood, you know, riddled with violence, along with being the leader of that city. I mean that. I don't think that really happens very many places in the country. Well, he's got a chance coming up, a long-form chance at a State of the City um, address. It'll be interesting if this comes up or if he takes audience questions. Yeah, uh, I I'm, no, I'm going to be watching that very closely, as a lot of other people are. And we'll see. Uh, there's been kind of odd rules in recent years about the State of the, the City. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. If you were to get the chance to talk to him, what are some of the questions you'd like to have answered? I mean, just what we talked about a little bit ago about what his views are, why he, you know, there's an explanation there somewhere as to why uh, suspected gang members are coming in and out of his house. He knows what it is. And that's not necessarily like he, you know, I I think what Blaine Griffin had said was, Pretty much, he's trying to help these kids and give them a place to 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 have a somewhat of a safe haven in a hor- you know crime riddled neighborhood. And he could say that, but he won't. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to have that. I did think it was a little bit unfortunate that he spent the time talking, denying that he interfered with the investigation. Because I think most people who know him know that's not his style. He's that's not who Frank Jackson has been. It, it's much more with all the effort he's tried to put into reducing gun violence without a whole lot of success to, to have these things right in the people he knows and cares about, um, how that, how that's affecting him and why he, he, you know, it's probably what drives him to fight it as hard as he can. Well, thanks Adam for taking the time. I'll make sure we get that name on your chair. Thanks. Next up, we'll be talking about some good news for once at the County jail. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Welcome, Courtney Estolfi, to the podcast. Thanks for taking some time away from the Cuyahoga County Beat to talk to us. Happy to be here. So you've been writing about the now infamous problems at the Cuyahoga County Jail for well over a year, and for many months, it seemed like you had daily revelations about screw-ups and scandal. So it must have felt pretty unusual for you to write a recent story about good news at the jail. County Executive Armin Budish brought in the team working on the jail to Cleveland.com for a meeting with reporters and editors. How about a couple of highlights from what they said? Yeah, so the big concerns at the jail over the past several months has been staffing and lockdowns of inmates. There's a lot of other issues going on, but those seem to be kind of the two big 
big concerns that that kind of touch all the other areas. So the team reported to us this week that um, the guard level is at 641, and that's the highest number of guards at the jail that we believe there's ever been. So that's... So that's that's a big move in the right direction. Also, there's been a lot of efforts to drive the population down. And whereas last year the population spiked to something like around 2,400, wow. they're, they're reporting that it's hovering now around 2,000. So still a few hundred over what the official capacity is. that's around 1,700? 1,760, yeah. Okay. So it's it's closer to that mark now. Okay. Um, and then another big thing, the problems at the jail over the past year, a big concern has been suicide risk for inmates. And they reported to us that, that Metro Health is now conducting both of their state-mandated health screenings. When inmates are brought in, that means that a health screening that must be completed within two weeks is now being done right when inmates walk in the door. And another interesting piece of that is Metro Health has added a third health screening aimed that's not state mandated, that's aimed solely at kind of identifying mental health issues and suicide risk. So that's above and beyond the state requirements. Not everything is so rosy, though, right? They're still locking down inmates simply because they don't have enough guards to watch them. They still have a pretty bad camera system, and camera systems are pretty key in jails these days. Uh, A lot of the things that they've been criticized for in past inspections are not fixed yet, right? Yeah, and the team acknowledges that. Some of this stuff is going to take time. You can't just snap your fingers and fix these chronic problems that have lingered for years overnight. So the team was very forthcoming that it is a process. Um, we we met with the new jail administrator, Rhonda Gibson. We met with Chief of Staff Bill Mason. A lot of his work since he started just a handful of weeks ago has been focused on the jail. The new warden, Greg Croucher. So they're getting these new folks into place to begin tackling And, and we should problems. probably note that they've only been in place largely for a couple of months, even though the jail problems kind of exploded into public consciousness last year with all the, the deaths we had. Uh, it took a little while to get that team together, and they've just just really started their work. Yeah, yeah, just over the summer. So what are they focused on fixing first? So what's the priority? Well, Bill Mason talked a lot about, and the whole team talked a lot about getting that inmate population down, that um, getting it close to that, that state-recommended capacity. So a lot of his efforts have been to to push that number in the right direction. He's been, he said he was been going up to individual judges courtrooms and talking with bailiffs saying this inmate, this inmate, this inmate, is there anything we can do to get them out of the jail? So really kind of like a hands-on approach we're seeing from Bill Mason. Also the jail brought back a former jail administrator, Ken Kochevar, and he's pretty much just dedicated to those efforts going through and pinpointing what inmates can be shipped out of the Cuyahoga County Jail to other jails because the county's starting to contract with other counties to kind of let off some of that steam and get inmates into those facilities. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in that jail meeting, and I've got to say that unlike with the last jail team, the one that came over in December to talk about the blistering inspection report from the U.S. Marshals, this team had lights on in their eyes. I mean, they had answers for our questions. They seemed to have a real command of what was going on. We asked a question about how many juveniles are in the jail, and the new warden knew it off the top of his head, something I don't think we would have gotten last year. doesn't mean that they'll fix everything, but at least they seem to have a focus. The one downside, though, is that none of them had sampled the jail food. The quality of the food at the jail has been a pretty big sticking point. And even though the outside consultant actually tried the food, something I'm not sure I'd want to do, they found it tasty and okay. It was kind of surprising that none of the people in the room had actually ever sampled it, even though it's been a real issue there. Yeah, I think they were kind of surprised by that question. But um, that, that was one of the big things in a recent report that came out this week, um, or last week, was that they acknowledge that the the improvements made to jail food has been one of the areas of greatest progress at the jail. So they hadn't sampled it, but but this report says that's been a big positive. Yeah, although one way to make sure the food stays good 
is to have the people who are in charge of the jail have to eat it, right? Because well, sure, if yeah. I have to eat that stuff, I'm going to want to make sure that it's that it's not the condition it was a year ago. We can do a restaurant reveal. <laughs> yeah, right. um, but another fact that stuck out in this report is that the doors in the jail are so old that no company services the locks anymore. A bunch of them are broken. So how on earth are they getting these things fixed? I would assume locks are pretty important in a jail. Yeah, those locks establish the whole secure perimeter. You're talking hallways, cells, housing units. So Public Works has teams of iron workers and electricians because the doors have electrical components. Rhonda Gibson said, you know, a lot of those don't work anymore, but Public Works has been attacking that. They actually have worked with the new the company that came out of the old company who manufactured the locks decades and decades ago. And that company has sent representatives to Cleveland, at least for the past decade, to work with Public Works and and teach them how to make repairs to those locks. Wow. It's not all good news at the jail, though. After months without any big developments in that long-running criminal investigation at the jail, you learned of a new subpoena the county received this week, and it, and it involved the jail. Yeah, so this this subpoena was issued in the ongoing case uh, against former jail director Ken Mills. A lot of the subpoenas we've been reporting about for the past year have been part of grand jury and have been part of grand jury inquiries. But this subpoena was part of Ken Mills's criminal case, and it sought four years of emails exchanged between various jail officials: former Sheriff Cliff Pinckney, former Chief Deputy George Taylor, Metro Health officials. And and the emails centered on topics such as one of the keywords was jail, but another one was like nursing, LPN, RN, regionalization. So it touches on these topics that have come up in the news over the past year. Mills was indicted what seems forever ago. So you think they'd already have the evidence they need before they indict him. You read the subpoena. Is it a fishing expedition or do you think the focus is pretty clear? Well, it is a, a, f- a four-year period, so... So that would mean fishing expedition. <laughs> it, that gives us no insight into what they're looking for. And then, I mean, one of the keywords was jail. That's right. That's pretty broad. <laughs> Remind us again, what is Ken Mills charged with? So he's facing t- two felonies and a handful of mister misdemeanor charges. He's accused of lying about his role in blocking the hiring of jail nurses during a May 22nd um, Cuyahoga County Council Committee hearing. He's also accused of lying to investigators about his interactions with a high-level county official that we don't know who that is. So everyone seems to agree that the permanent solution to all these jail problems is to build a new one. And a committee of judges and the county and a bunch of others are assessing the need for that. But the longer they dither, the more the money it's going to cost taxpayers, correct? And we're talking like a half a billion dollars. Yeah. So this project, I mean, baseline, this project, Public Works has said this is expected to be the most costly project in county history ever. Um, We're probably talking north of half a billion dollars. Um, But even on that low end, my colleague uh, Pete Krause had learned that that, um, for every, every year that they delay building the Justice Center, costs will rise by 6%. If you're talking more than half a billion dollars, I mean, that's tens of millions every mm-hmm. year. So in addition to the problems at the jail, creating an urgency to get this project going, that's a factor here too. Right. So for a while, it sounded like the process on the Justice Center was bogged down. Lately, it seemed like people were working together a little bit more. Does Applebaum see it other ways? Or do you think that they're still bogged down? Well, they have a, a schedule now and, and they have like a timeline. What was bogging it down before was deciding who was going to get to be at the table for decision making. They've they've worked that out now, but now's when the real work begins. So next week, there's going to be a meeting of this 12 member steering committee and they're going to start to make determinations about the future jail size and how many courtrooms they're going to need and how many judges and because they don't even know if they're going to build new where where they would build right they don't even know what the plan would be correct and that's what this several month long process seeks out or seeks to determine but yeah we don't have an answer yet if it's going to be a newly built jail if it's going or justice center or a renovated justice center and we don't know yet if if the plan is to maybe separate those buildings out into different sites or or where those sites might be. 
There's a new wrinkle, though. Uh, Councilman, County Councilman Dale Miller wants the jail a good bit smaller than anyone else is talking about. What's he thinking? Yeah, this was interesting. So he sent, he's not on the steering committee that's making these determinations, but he sent a letter to every member saying there was a consultant that gave the committee a couple weeks ago several different options of potential jail population. And that lowest estimate projected, like, say, the jail needed a capacity for 2,100 inmates by 2045. Dale Miller proposed, a, and that was like, the smallest estimate the consultant put forward. So Dale Miller came out and said, let's cut it by 500 more inmates. So way more ambitious than any of the proposals that have been put out there. Does Miller have the juice to get this done or is he just a voice in the wilderness on council? You know, for the past several months, he's, he's, he's made it clear that he wants to see sweeping justice reforms like bail reform, central booking to drive that number down. But I think it's probably going to be difficult to get some reforms in place. I don't know if if overhauling the whole system is viable, but he seems to think it is. Well, it just seemed crazy to me when I saw that story. Like, our biggest problem with the jail is we have too many people in it. So let's build a new jail that's way smaller. Except modern jailing, it should be smaller. The, the, the idea of warehousing people has been moved away from. We're very antiquated in the way we handle that kind of thing. And one of Miller's points is is just talking about how drastically the U.S. jail population has risen over the past 40 years. So he thinks if it was able to rise that quickly, we should be able to put in reforms to, to dial that back. And look, we've been harping on reforms for at least three years now with our Justice for All series, making the very same arguments Dale Miller has made, and and largely the judges have been the the uh, the issue there. I guess it's possible that you could have extra space just in case, but because no one says you have to fill all the beds, right? Right, but then you're talking about um, spending money on right, on, stuff per, you don't on operational yeah. costs, and then yeah. you're wasting money. So striking the right balance and balancing, making sure you have enough beds for the future population but also trying to whittle it down. They've got to strike that balance. Right. Now. So they'll be working on that. Let's go back to the criminal investigation, which also has a focus on Budish, even though he's not charged with anything. He paid his defense attorney a bunch of money from his campaign expense account, bringing questions from the county elections board. This week, you got Budish's answers. What did he say? Yeah. So Budish's campaign responded to the board of elections this week and and justified his, his use of 208000 in campaign fees to pay for legal fees in the ongoing, in connection with the ongoing criminal probe of county government. He basically, in, in his response to the Board of Elections, said that he cited a bunch of previous opinions by the Ohio Elections Commission and that outlined how legal fees in prior cases were allowed to be paid for using campaign funds. He also, the letter also emphasized that in, in several cases, the Ohio Elections Commission argued that legal fees were not allowed to be used when someone has been criminally charged. Budish isn't criminally charged here, mm. so that seems to be um, the part of the precedent right. that they're relying on. So is that the end of it, or could the Elections Board reject his answers, demand he put the money back? And if they did, could Budish appeal that? So the Board of Elections now will consider this response, this letter that he sent in, and if they have you know, a continued issue or they, they feel like it's still problematic, then it's my understanding the Board of Elections could move to to refer the case down to Columbus, to the Ohio Elections Commission, for like the full vetting of it. But we haven't gotten that far yet, and it's still very early in whatever that process could turn out to be. Okay. All right, let's move away from the county investigation and then the jail to something else where the walls are caving in, Irishtown Bend and the Cuyahoga River. We've known for years that the earth there could collapse into the river, blocking the vital shipping channel, and a whole bunch of efforts are underway to, to stop that and shore it up. You had a piece this week involving a county paving project that might help. Yeah, so the county, as part of uh, efforts to stabilize Irishtown Bend, so you've got the hillside, and that's failing, and the port authorities kind of leading the way on this big effort to, to stabilize the bulkheads and keep that that hill from sliding. But the county is going to chip in the lion's share. It would like to chip in the lion's share of 
funding for for to reconstruct Franklin Boulevard. Franklin Boulevard, which sits on top of that hill and is starting to crack. It, I was told it was on a fault line, so the county wants to pay about two million to move that back and and get that road stabilized as part of the the hillside project. Well, thank you, Courtney, and lightning as always to get your perspective on the county. Thanks for having me. In a moment, we'll talk about the privacy concerns arising from the use by police of video from those doorbell cameras. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We have Chris Warnowski in the house. He's the Cleveland.com Crime and Courts editor, so never a dull moment with him. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Chris, you handled a couple of fascinating stories this week. The first involved doorbell cameras that are showing up everywhere, and the story was about my town of Rocky River. My police department has made a deal with Amazon to use the video from those cameras, and it's raising privacy concerns. Right. So Rocky River is one of about 400 police departments across the United States that have entered into these uh, agreements with Amazon and their product Ring, which are these video surveillance doorbells that you're probably seeing a lot of videos, you know, across the Internet of of people stealing packages off porches and stuff. Well, they send us news releases like, look at this squirrel. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a it's an interesting product. And and. And it does raise, you know, it's starting to sort of raise some privacy alarms among people. So who in Rocky River decided it? Was it the mayor and council, the people elected to represent people? Actually not. Uh, According to the police department, they had an attorney review a contract with uh, with the company. And then they just entered in the police department directly entered into an agreement with with Amazon and 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 their ring product and neighbors apps. So I talked to some of my friends and neighbors about this this week, people who have a ring doorbell and who don't. Nobody knew that this had happened. I think the, the, the police department had entered into the deal in January and it didn't really make a stir. And so some thought it was an invasion of privacy. Some people saw no issue with police getting to use that video of the crime if a camera recorded a crime. People wanted to know, hey, did I, did I agree to this when I signed up? Was it in the fine print? Um, I guess if you know if if a, I had a camera and it showed two cars crashing in front of my house and um why not provide it to the police but it's an issue that people are going to be talking about It is and it's you know it it it's we get into these thorny debates about the ethics of of surveillance and 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 it it's always seems to be a huge problem when the government wants to eavesdrop on our phone calls and everything but you know what happens when we get into the the process of surveilling ourselves and our neighbors and then and then suddenly the police have the ability to tap into these things. I mean, there, there are some, there are some firewalls, you know, they, you know, people can d- deny allowing police to take their video. Um, but if they share it publicly through this neighbor's app, it's fair game. Well, let's talk about that app a little bit. You, the story noted that Ring is building this kind of social network for community crime. Uh, it's not just a place where they can share their video. They can talk to each other about crime and you don't even have to be a ring camera owner to participate. So what's that? Um, I think there, you know, I mean, there are crime groups and, you know, things like, I mean, there's things like next door and all of these Facebook crime watch groups. And I think Amazon is sort of trying to, to tap into that. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I think people go, well, what's the harm? You're only doing good. You're helping people solve crimes ring doorbells are going to deter people and that's all well and good but you know we forget that things like facebook started out as a way to check up on people you used to know and suddenly it's being used to hack elections and stuff like that so it's you know we 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 tend to be very fascinated with how technology can immediately make our lives better but you know amazon is working on facial recognition technology amazon is has massive contracts with the government, with all government. So, you know, it's there's a lot going on in the background where it's this cheap, interesting, accessible technology, and we're like, hey, bells and whistles. But but 
what's going to happen in the future with this? We should point out Ring is actually a Cleveland company. It was a startup in the motion-activated security light business that kept growing and eventually got bought by Amazon, which has rocketed it to the moon in terms of startups. But Ring isn't the only maker of these cameras. Google Nest makes them. Uh, I, th- I, I think there's some other companies out there making them. So is it likely we're going to see competing neighborhood social networks to talk about crime where the police are contracting with each one? Or are we in a situation where the police are are kind of endorsing one camera over another based on the accessibility of the video? I think... I don't know. I mean, I, I can't predict the future of, of, of what's going to happen. I, you know, I just, I, I think it's imperative for people who, who are thinking about getting these things to really seriously think about future implications of what, of what this technology means. Well, that's what I was going to jump on. You know, it's one thing to have the fine print to be like, well, didn't you read this? Didn't you check this box? But that can change, right? I mean, and so what you say now, like, you don't have to share your video. The police can't request you know require you to share it i mean that could change too and what was i mean there was a poll that came out just a couple of days ago that said like 50 percent of americans think it's perfectly okay for police to get into the facial recognition game i mean you know maybe you know maybe this is what the public wants you know maybe we want to be narking on each other constantly i mean it's you know i mean social media has turned up the you know, let's ruin our neighbors' lives with tweets. Well, so, the, the, you know, it's it, maybe this is where we are in America. But the now. the risk is that you, if you have one of those cameras, you don't have physical possession of the video right. uh and you know usually this these con- the, the contracts the the video is supposed to exist for two weeks and then go away but you don't know whether amazon is not storing it and even though it was video shot with your camera that their fine print today says it's yours they can change the fine print at any time uh and your choice then is to if you pay attention you could turn off your camera and that's the it's when you're not in physical possession of the video that's what makes this nerve-wracking for privacy experts i think i think what consumers really need to keep in mind and and this happens you know when you get when you get when when a company is offering you technology for cheap, I think Ring cameras are what ninety nine dollars. It if you're getting cheap technology, you really need to think to yourself, well, why is this so cheap? Because when a company gives away technology, there's something that they're getting out of it that you might not think about. You know, Google, for all intents and purposes is a great web search company, but they're also one of the largest data collection companies and they use that data to sell advertising. And that is what the business is. Okay. So another story out of my town this week involved the arrest of a Romanian national who's set to be deported. It was news because Rocky River police smashed his minivan window to allow ICE to arrest him. This was recorded on their body cameras. And it was also news because he's fighting deportation out of fear. It will kill one of his daughters. So can you talk us through this story? Yeah, this was a story that Eric Isaac actually came across, and um, we actually had, you know, the police department put up a little bit of a fight in giving us the body cam video that uh, showed them knocking the window out of this car. And, you know, it's, you know, we're seeing these videos come out almost daily from every corner of the United States where, you know, ICE is, you know, staking out people's apartments or sitting outside of court hearings or waiting outside of churches. And, you know, there's there's a lot of gray area in these in these situations because some cities do uh, agree to assist ICE in these investigations. Some cities don't. You know, there are cities here that, you know, where they're police chiefs I, I, I think cities. Lorraine's police chief specific like maybe the previous police chief specifically said like we're not going to get in the business of you know being immigration police officers mm-hmm. that's the job of the federal government right. and so you know this gentleman I believe was on the phone with his attorney trying to figure out the right thing to do I believe they were telling him you know don't get out of your car and and mm-hmm. the cops just 
smash the window, unlock the car. And oh, well, it, you can see on the video, the cops give him plenty of fair oh, warning. Oh, yeah, don't get me it's wrong. It's not like they walked it's, up, smashed his window. They said, hey, if you don't get out, we're going to have to smash your window. We've got to get to you. And he still didn't get out. Of all of the videos of windows being smashed, this was the, <laughs> so, the politest one that I think that it's Rocky come River. Out. I mean, uh, can you go back a little bit and talk about who George Lattis is and what he was doing here in the first place? Well, he came here on a work visa that expired and he just stayed. And and this is this is a story that is is common across America. You but met, part he of the married, reason he you know, he, he's also very active in his church. Yeah. You know, he I believe he was the choir director and he has three children, his middle child of which has according to his attorneys a a, a life-threatening heart illness that he believes that if he leaves, his family will have to come with him to Romania. And if he does, he don't. He doesn't believe his daughter will get the same level of medical treatment there. When you and I were talking about this the other day, you were arguing that the kind of warrant that they had doesn't allow them to do necessarily what they did. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, I, I believe that in this administrative warrants, these these immigration warrants are a little different than your typical criminal warrant where they can just come barging into your house screaming warrant 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 I, I mean there there are different rules that apply and you have a different set of rights uh, in through the immigration court system as to you know what what police are allowed to do you know it's it's more or less just sort of an administrative thing saying you're due at this hearing and 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 i believe this process is sort of being misused by ICE or, or at least being used in a much more aggressive way and and a lot of people who are here who may not speak great english who are you know the english is a second language don't really understand the law and think that you know they don't have rights so you know there are a lot of organizations out there that are are working really hard to make sure that people who are are here under these circumstances um do understand what their rights are when police approach them and say hey you know you have to come with us it's like well I might not have to, and 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 I think that might have been the case in this in this instance as well. So, where is he now, and what comes next? Um, I mean, that's kind of up in the air. I mean, it's you know, some people st- stay in detention for a, a long time before they actually get in front of a judge. I believe he's being held in the Geauga County Jail, which I, okay. is contracting with the federal government to hold ICE. He, they're one of many counties in the state that are, have contracts with the with ice to hold people. So, so he's there and, and it's, it's up in the air as to when he's going to actually see a judge. I mean, some people wait months before they actually see somebody. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris. Always like to get your deep take on the issues. Thank you. You are listening to this week in the CLE. Laura, we're wrapping up this podcast with just us because you did something very few people on this planet have done. You rode a hoverboard like Marty McFly, only you did it over water. Yep. I did this uh, thing called an e-foil and it was patented in 2015. It's like a surfboard that's kind of short. It's like up to six feet and it has a battery operated motor and a propeller that's like three feet below the surface and you ride over a river or a lake or a pond on it um the company that makes it is called lift foils they're out of puerto rico and they just started shipping it in may of this year so we're talking or sorry may of 2018 so we're talking it's only been around for a little over a year it's been shipped around uh to six continents everybody but the penguins has it on their continent and there's about 1500 in the world right now so when you i was watching the video you did and it looks like what it has is this really long keel with a propeller at the bottom of it and i and it, it just struck me What's the point of the hovering? Why not? Why wouldn't you just put the propeller on the bottom of the board itself to to go tooling around the? Because board? then you wouldn't look as cool when you're like riding three feet out of the water, right? Um, it's the waves, so that you can do this on any kind of surface, and you don't have to worry about the wake because you can actually be on top of the wake. And one of the guys who was instructing me was just sitting on it, riding 
two feet out of the water. So once you get up high, once you're doing the hovering, even if you have choppy water, you're not getting buffeted about. Right. It's not like when you're water skiing or wake surfing, which I've tried, and you're like, oh my God, I got to cross the wake. I'm going to hit all these waves. I'm going to fall off. You can just glide in the air. Do you, you do you go fast enough where the whole thing could literally come out of the water? Yes. So... Um, you can go up to 25 miles an hour on it. I probably did 10 to 12 miles an hour and I did get to fo- foil is what the hovering is called. So I did foil at one point and I did, had one lesson on Monday. It was about 45 minutes long. So I got up and you start when you're learning, even the first time, even if you know how to do this, you start on your stomach, kind of like you're boogie boarding and then you get to your knees and then you stand up. And then when you get comfortable standing up and you're, you know how to balance it. And because the motor's in the back, you have to put a lot of pressure on your front leg. Um, then you can go to the foiling. You can go at it. And it's all, it's not like there's a button for up on this remote. You have a remote in your hand. It's just a trigger. So you have just to press the trigger, you know, faster like harder to get to rise out of the water and i thought one of the trickiest parts was to get a really steady trigger finger um so that you're going at a constant speed because if you are jerking you're going to fall off and i fell off a lot right and you do a lot of paddle boarding so you have a, a sense of balance the the falling was because of the changing rate of speed on this thing well and that because you don't know what you're doing right like it's a whole new sensation um, so the, the folks that do this efoil over Erie, it's a Rocky river based. We have this whole theme with Rocky river this week, but they're based in Rocky river. They do lessons. It's about $250 for one lesson, which could be a little longer than an hour and a half. Um, they promise pretty much to get you up on the first lesson. So it's not a difficult thing to master, but it is a whole new different sensation. And you have to figure out, um, because the motor is in the back, the tip of the board, the nose of the board wants to come up. And so to keep it level, you have to figure out how to, where to put your balance. And there's a lot of pressure on your front leg um, and, or, or in your hand, if, if you're not yet standing to push it down. So like any new product, the first versions cost a fortune. Um, but years from now, do you expect that the price will be down? I mean, it's a fairly simple thing, so right? It's, it's a board, it's a battery, and it's a motor. Right. So it's a $12,000 product right now from Liftfoil, and they sell like four different types. And there are, I think, a few other companies in the world that make these. Um, so $12,000 is obviously not cheap. Um, they like to put it with the cost of a jet ski because it's like a motorized vehicle. You don't need a boat to tow. Um but yes, I can see this. Maybe this is never going to be as cheap as a paddle board, but... Man, there's a lot There's a lot more going on There's a lot more going ski. on. Plus, but okay, boats are not cheap in general. You know, I was at a boat show a couple weeks ago and sat on a $2.5 million boat. So if you're going to buy a $2.5 million boat, I really hope you should just have one of these for fun. But in the end, when, when this can be made by multiple companies, you look at the cost of what goes into it, and it's not the same kind of materials you get with a jet ski. I would expect to see a much lower price. I eventually. think eventually, you know, just like you know, everything. Well, it's nice that we're ending with something that's a lot more fun than we began (laughs) with. So let's leave it there. Thanks to Laura and our guests for the conversation. And thank you for listening this week in the CLE is published Thursdays. Hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. And we'll be back next week.